Psalm 130, verse 1, the word of the Lord says this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Good morning again, and Merry Christmas. I guess I'm, Merry Christmas? Okay, good. It is good to be back with you this morning as we continue our journey through Advent, the season of Advent, the coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, we celebrate His coming and His birth, but we also are, anticipate His next coming, uh, His arrival to finally rule and conquer all things. Uh, just one announcement this morning, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump into God's holy word here in Psalm chapter 130. Uh, our announcement is next Sunday morning, we'll be taking up a Christ for Christmas offering. Christ for Christmas offering, different than the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, is uh, the Christ for Christmas offering is our way of doing benevolence here at the church. So at the end of every year, we give a offering back to Christ so that we can therefore then go and bless our community. So there's any needs within the church, or outside the church um, financially, uh, that Christ for Christmas offering is a way that we uh, give back to the Lord and use that to the furtherance of his kingdom for our community and our church. So it's our benevolence offering. It's called the Christ for Christmas offering. So we'll take up that again uh, next Sunday morning at the beginning of the service as well. Again, you can make uh, your, uh, if you're writing a check, just put Christ for Christmas in the memo line. Online, uh, there's another drop-down box. Click that, Christ for Christmas, or give cash as well. All those we'll, we'll receive, and then use that to bless other people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into uh, Psalm chapter uh, 130, verses 1 through 8 this morning. God, I pray that you, through the Holy Spirit, would quiet our souls, our minds, and our hearts to receive from you. God, I, I pray that you, through your power, your goodness, your kindness, would remove all distractions from us. We look to you and you alone. God, you are our hope, as we'll look at this morning. Pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not sense you and feel your hope, that this morning through the preaching and the teaching and the washing of your word over our hearts, that we would experience your hope for us. So now lead us and guide us. Use your infallible and errant inspired word to do what only it can do, and that's transform us. 
So we give our hearts, our minds, and our ears to you this morning. Have your way with us. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We will be looking at Psalm 130. Uh, You may know I preached on Psalm 130 several summers ago when we were walking through the Psalms of Ascent. So if you've marked that in your Bible and think, well, what are we going to cover this again for? Uh, I looked and reviewed my notes after I took all of my notes. Uh, This is a different sermon than it was the first time I preached it. Um, By God's goodness um, and kindness to us, we can read God's word, study God's word, and get something out of it one time, and then come back to it and get something out of it a different time. Uh, I I believe it was uh, John Calvin that said uh, that God's word is like a diamond, and every time you turn it, you get a new piece of it. You get to see it a little different. So that's what I want to do this morning as we look at uh, this idea of hope in the Advent season. Remember, we've defined Advent as this. It comes from the Latin word Adventus. It means arrival or coming. And for us, Advent is the time of patient waiting with hopeful expectation, soul searching and calendar watching as we await the arrival and coming of Jesus, the Savior. So this is the season we are in. We are celebrating the arrival of Christ coming, but we also are here with great expectation of his ultimate return. So yes, we both celebrate his arrival as a child, as a baby, to come into the world to save the world, but that ought to stir our affections, that ought to stir our minds and our hearts as a reminder that he made a promise that he will return again. So yes, we both celebrate the Advent at Christmas as we eagerly await his return. And then we've been talking about the incarnation. That is what Christmas is. Christmas is the incarnation that God himself pulled on skin, that God through Christ Jesus, his son, pulled on skin and became like us. But yet he did not give up his divinity to be like us. He was fully God and fully man or truly God and truly man. And that's the incarnation. That's the beauty of what we believe to be true here in Christianity. We are the only religion that believes in the incarnation. And that's where all other religions just cannot seem to wrap their head around it. If you talk to a good Muslim, they they would tell you that Christ was a great prophet. They would tell you that he was a great man, that he was the, 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 the prophet among prophets. But where they get hung up is how could a prophet so good like he also be God? And that's what we believe to be true, that Christ is not only a good prophet, not only a good man, but a sinful man that came in the form of man, but he was truly God. This is what R.C. Sproul, and this is how we've defined the incarnation during this series. The incarnation is this, God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took on human nature without subtracting from himself any of his divine attributes. And so we've looked so far at the incarnation of love, how Christ came and he was love for us. And then the second week, we looked at Christ, the incarnation of peace. So Christ in his incarnation was both love for us and brought us peace. This morning, as we go through the Advent calendar, this morning is the incarnation of hope. Christ is our hope this morning. I want you to write that in your Bible, or if you're taking notes, write hope. I think we must. it's essential for us to have a proper, healthy 
understanding of what hope is. This is how Webster defines hope. Hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Let me say that again. Webster, in his dictionary, says this, a feeling, catch that first word, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. That is much different than biblical hope. Biblical hope defined is this. Hope is a confidence that God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will and is doing in the future. I'll read that again. Biblical hope. Hope is the confidence that God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do in the future. Do you see the difference between worldly hope and biblical hope? It comes down to one word. The one word is this, certainty. The the world tells us we have an expectation with hope, that, that there's this expectation that it could happen, that it might happen, that we desire it to happen, but that doesn't mean our hopes always come to fruition in the worldly sense, do they? Many people have hope for a lot of things and in their life have never received those things. And maybe you're here this morning with worldly hope, worldly desires. Some may come to fruition, but many will not. And if you put your hopes in those things, those things will always leave us unsatisfied. But biblical hope, as defined this morning, is the certainty. But what is it that we're certain of this morning? We've been studying through the book of Genesis for the last 40-some weeks. We are certain in what the promises of God this morning. So this morning, we come at this Advent season with this expectation but a certain expectation that God's promises will come true. Not only do we expect them to come true, but we believe them that they will come true this morning. That is where we have to place our hope this morning. And so we're going to look this morning at where is our hope this morning? What is your hope this morning? Just a little background on the text this morning before we just dive in. We're, we're right in the middle of the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent, there's 15 Songs of Ascent in uh, the, the, the Psalter, in the Psalms. Those 15 Psalms were given to the people of God as they journeyed up to, into Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement for it, the Jewish people is the most holy day in all of their calendar. The Day of Atonement was the day that they would come and they would bring all their iniquities, all their sins, and all that they'd done for the year, and they'd bring them to the temple, and they would present them to the high priest. And then the high priest would go in, and he would make sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. They would do two things. They would sacrifice an animal, put the blood on the altar, but they would also put what we would call the scapegoat. They would put the sins on the scapegoat and push the scapegoat into the wilderness where that animal would never return. But the songs of ascent are a way for the people of God to prepare their hearts for the Day of Atonement. My hope and prayer this morning for us 
is that this would be a moment for us that we would prepare our hearts for God's return. That when we come to the text, that we would use Psalm 130 as a way to prepare our hearts and that this Advent season, we prepare our hearts in the way of what are we hoping for this morning. So I'd ask you that this morning before we start. What is your hope in this morning? Is your hope in your circumstances? Is your hope in what other people may or may not do for you? Or is your hope in the Lord? Not as a way of pun, but my hope for you is that you would leave here this morning and you'd put all of your hope, all of your certainty on Christ the King as we celebrate His coming both now at Christmas and His ultimate return. So let's dive into the text this morning. As we jump into the text, there's four things I'd like to see. to to share with you this morning. Those four things are this. The first one is a cry for hope. That's verses one and two. The second one is this, verses three and four, a reason for hope. The third one is this, verses five and six, a longing for hope. And the last seven and eight is a promise for hope. So let's look this morning at a cry for hope hope right out of the gates the psalmist says this the writer says this he says out of the depths i cry to you O lord so he's saying in that moment he starts off his song to the lord his prayer to the lord if you will hey god i'm in the midst of the depths that word depths means in the hebrew it's in the place of the sea he's saying i'm in the sea of trouble and i have no way out. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you find yourself in a place that feels hopeless, in a pit of despair, a hopeless place. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm verse 69, verses 1 and 2. He cries out to the Lord again, and he says this in verses 1 and 2. He says, save me, O God, from what the waters or the depths that have come up to my neck. I sink in the the miry places where there is no foothold i have come to the deep waters that floods and engulfs me jonah if you remember the prophet jonah jonah had been running from god god had placed a call on jonah's life to go and speak out to the the, to to the ninevites and he says he's told to go to Nineveh. And where, where do we find Jonah? Remember, Jonah runs as far away from Nineveh as possible. He gets on a ship to Tarshish to go completely the opposite way. And God sends this great storm onto the sea to call back Jonah. And remember what Jonah says at the end of chapter one. He, he says, all this is my fault. Throw me into the sea. And then chapter two, he says this in the midst of his Despair, Jonah chapter one, verses one and verse five, Jonah chapter two, verses one and five. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish, saying, I call out to the Lord out of my distress. Verse five, the waters closed in all around me to take my life. The deep, deep surrounded me. The weeds wrapped around my head. 
there's this moment and there's this moment in this writer, the psalmist, that his life is in great peril. He is about to die. I don't know about you, but if you have ever been in the place of total despair, that is what it feels like. Many people, when they come into my office as a clinician and they talk about depression, these are the words they use. Do you see out of the gates, there's this certain place of hopelessness for him? My hope and my prayer is this, that you would be honest with yourself. As I have been this week, there's been many times that I've been right here in the place of despair and hopelessness. Maybe that is you this morning. But I'd offer you this. What does a psalmist do next? It's what God calls us to do next. Look at the next very words. Out of the depths, he what? He cried to the Lord. Then it says this in verse 2. I cried to the Lord. And he says, what is this cry to the Lord? To hear my voice in verse 2. To let your ears be attentive to my voice of plea uh, for mercy. And so we see two things. The, the psalmist cries out to the Lord. That word cries out does, does not mean a tearful cry. It, it means an anguish cry or a shout to the Lord. If you've had children, you've heard them cry out before, have you not, in the middle of the night? Like when terror hits, when there's a bad dream or a nightmare, there's this moment for children and I hope it's true for us. There's this cry out that happens. And that's where the psalmist is. He's crying out. There's this shout as he's in his moment of hopelessness to the Lord. He cries out two things. He cries out to be heard and to be attended to. It's one thing to cry out to be heard. But it's a whole nother ballgame that you would cry out and ask the Lord to what attend to you. I've said this many times before. If you've ever been overseas and you've ever been to an orphanage overseas, the eeriest thing about an orphanage overseas is just how quiet it is. Because what happens is those children begin to learn, no matter how much I cry out, there'll be no attention brought to me, so I'm going to stop wasting my time and energy in my cry out. But what the psalmist is saying that there's this place in him, I'm going to cry out to God, and my plea is that God would attend to me. But he's saying it in the posture of he hopes that will happen. Not a hope that it might happen, but he is in this place of certainty. If I cry out to God, God will attend to me in my cry out. Do we believe that this morning, church? Do we believe when we cry out that God will attend to us? But look what he cries out for. He, what does he ask God to hear him in? What does he ask God to attend to him in? He says, I cry out that you may hear my voice of pleas for mercy. God have mercy on me. 
You see, in that moment, the psalmist, he's going to tell us, he's going to bring us into recognition what he's crying out to God for mercy for. I'll, I'll get to the punchline already. He has this place in him that knows he's sinned against God. And he's finally at the end of himself. And he knows there's nothing in him that he can do to bring himself to a place of hope. So he gets to the bottom, he gets to the end of himself, and he cries out to God, but he cries out to God for mercy due to his sin. The biblical definition of mercy is this, that we wouldn't get what we deserve. So he's saying, God, I know what I deserve because of my sinfulness. And we can read out through the Bible what God requires because of our sinfulness death and so he's saying god please god please don't bring me to a place of death have mercy on me don't give me what i deserve have mercy on me god have mercy on me god have mercy on me god but he's doing that where in a place of hope he has the expectation and the certainty that what God will have mercy on him. Do we have that certainty this morning, church? You see, the psalmist is crying out from a place of relational need to a holy God. To be heard, to be attended to, and to receive mercy. I love this idea. That he has this understanding, and it's true for us, even in his deepest despair, he knows where to go. More importantly, he knows where God already is. God is with him in his despair. You see, that is the incarnation, God being with us in our despair. You see, Christ Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, tells us this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But in every respect, he understands us. Remember, even Christ himself was in a place of despair. Even Christ himself in the garden cried out from the depths. What did he say to God? God, if it's your will, remove this cup from me. He understood what it meant to be in a place of despair. But yet he had the certainty of what God was going to do with his life. So he cried out with hope. Now let's move to the reason that this man is able to cry out. And this is the reason we're able to cry out. We have a reason for hope this morning. Look what he says. This is a rhetorical question. He says to God, here's the reason I have hope. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's not a question he's asking. He knows the answer to the question. He's saying, if God, if you were to mark out all of my iniquities, I would not be able to stand in your presence. I told Jenny in studying this week, if you mark your Bibles, now, circle the word mark iniquities. Go down to verse 6 and highlight the word watchman. Those two words, as surprising as it is, come from the same root word. 
So what is the psalmist saying? He's saying if God were uh, like a watchman watching out for all of our sin, who could stand? Why? Because what does the watchman do? The watchman is on a tower when he sees the enemy coming. He doesn't let the enemy get to a place of danger. He takes them out. And he's saying, if God, if you were like a watchman and you were to mark our iniquities, you would blot us out. There's no way I could stand. Because you won't miss. He has an understanding of who God is. But yet he gives us this great hope. He's in essence saying, but God, you don't mark out our iniquities. You're not a God in heaven waiting for us the way a watchman is waiting for us to strike us dead. Because I understand if that's the kind of God you were, I would not be able to stand here. I would be dead. He has this hope. And where does his hope lie? All the text changes with this one word in verse 4. Circle this in your Bible. But. The psalmist is telling us he's in this place of despair. He understands it's his sinfulness. He's crying out to God for mercy. He understands if his sins were to be accounted against him, he would die. But what does he say? All the text, the chapter, hinges on this one word. But. The turning point of the passage. But what does he say? But with you, there is forgiveness. So he understands his reason for hope is because he's certain that God is going to forgive him because he's already forgiven him. That is where our hope lies this morning, church. We have been forgiven. Why do we continue to live as men and women in a church that does not have a God that forgives? Because we can be certain today that he is a God that forgives. Here's one of the coolest parts in studying this text for me this week. Many of us would come and read this word as uh, an adjective or an adverb. This is something that God does. God does forgive. That's not how the Hebrew word reads. The way the Hebrew reads is simply this. It is this, God forgives, meaning God is forgiveness. It's his character. It's not just something he does. Forgiveness is the character of God, the same way that love is the character of God, the same way holiness is a character of God. God cannot not forgive. My grandmother would be rolling over in her grave for using two double negatives. But he has to forgive. It's who he is. It's a noun in the text. God is forgiveness. Not only does God forgive, but it is who he is. And because it is who he is and it is because of what he does, because with you there is forgiveness, or with you, you are forgiveness, he says. The reason that we hope is you forgive all of our iniquities. And then he says this. That you may be fear. An odd place to put fear, is it not? He's talking about all the fears he's already had. 
Then he comes to verse 4, and there's this transition word that God forgives. And he says now, because God forgives, I fear God. What the psalmist is saying is this. When we have both a healthy understanding of God, and we have a better, healthy understanding of our sin, we will fear God. Because it's in God's holiness, His righteousness to what was sin, to kill it, to eradicate it. But we also have a healthy understanding that God forgives. So I have to have this healthy understanding of who God is. And I have to have a healthy understanding of what my sin does. Because when those two things collide, I will fear God. Now, not fear in the sense of if if there's a scary dog, we run from it. A fear that says, the way he says moments later, I I cannot, I, I cannot be in your presence and not fall down. It's a place of reverence, a place of honor, a place of worship. What the psalmist is saying, when I understand God and I understand my sin, I will worship God. I love what the Prince of Preachers says, probably outside of Paul, in my opinion, Jesus not included in this, the greatest uh, pastor, the greatest man to ever give sermons is Spurgeon, an old English preacher. He said this about this passage. None fear the Lord like those who have experienced His loving forgiveness. Let me say that one more time. None fear the Lord like those who have experienced His loving forgiveness. You see, our hope this morning is in that he has forgiven us. And so my question to you this morning is this. Have you received such loving forgiveness from God that you worship him? Because he is a God that forgives. Then the psalmist goes on to say this. He, He says, here's the reason for our hope. But now I have this longing for hope. Verses 5 and 6. I wait. He uses the word four different times. You can circle in your Bible and connect the words. And that, that's how I, when I look at the scripture and highlight, I'll just circle words that are joined together. These four words. He says, wait in verse 5. Wait in verse 5. Hope in verse 5. And again in verse 6 says, wait. Those Four words all have the same root word, hoping and waiting. But it's a hoping and waiting with a certain expectation. So he can say, I long with certain expectation for hope. I wait for the Lord. He's saying, I'm certain of the Lord's return. My soul waits for the Lord. And in his word, I hope or I wait. My soul waits for the Lord. And so I would ask you this, what is he waiting and hoping for? He tells us here in the text. He says, I hope and I wait on what? The word. I'm waiting and I'm hoping with certain expectation on the word of God. Turn with me to John chapter one. What is the psalmist waiting for? 
The word is logos in the text. In the beginning was what? The word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, the word. And without him, the word was nothing, anything made that was made. In him, the word was life. And in the life was the light of man that shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so what is the psalmist longing for and waiting for? The word. He is waiting with expectation in the promise of God. What did God tell us back in Genesis chapter three? That he would send the word to us. And so he's not waiting with this uh, unexpected expectation. He is holding God to his promises. I am waiting on the Lord. I am waiting on the Son of God. He is my longing for hope, is what he says. He is hoping in what? The incarnation of Jesus, the Word. That is where his hope comes from. My submission to you is this is that where your hope comes from is your hope this morning in Christ Jesus why do we place our hope in the incarnation of Jesus turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 this is the promise from the Lord about Jesus the incarnation Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 one. This is what the word of the Lord says. She, Mary, will bear a son. That's Jesus. And you shall call his name Jesus. Or Emmanuel, God with us. How come? For he will what? Save his people from their sins. The incarnation, Jesus is a promise from God that we rest our hope that He forgives our sins this morning. That is what the psalmist is longing for and hoping for. And then he says this, I hope this way. My soul waits, my soul longs, my soul hopes with eager expectation, with eager knowing that the Lord will return more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. Do you know how a watchman waits for the morning? With eager expectation, knowing it's going to come. You and I don't go to bed at night thinking, I wonder if the sun's coming up. We go to bed and we know that the sun will come. The same way that a watchman is eagerly waiting for the sun to rise. What is he waiting for? So that his anxiety is decreased. Because back then they didn't have spotlights. The only lighting they had was from a fire or from a torch. That does not go very far. So they cannot see the enemy far off. So there's this always in a watchman, this anxiety of waiting through the night, just wondering when the enemy's going to come. 
But what happens in the morning, the sun rises, and then they can see way farther. And so he's saying, even more than than the watchman is eagerly ready for the morning, my soul is eagerly waiting for the Lord's return. Are you like a watchman waiting for the Lord's return? Can you and I say, my soul longs or waits or desires the Lord's return? Because you and I, if we know this to be true, if he has come and he has forgiven us, we have no anxiety of his return. It's only those that are apart from Christ who ought to have anxiety of the Lord's return. But you and I, we can eagerly wait for the Lord's return because we know we've been forgiven and we have hope in our forgiveness. And because we have hope in our forgiveness, then we just can't wait to be in the presence of God. Amen? But how often do we not eagerly await the Lord's return because we think and we don't believe that God has forgiven us, that he's out to smite us? No, he, as he's going to say, he is a God of steadfast love. But we, church, don't often live that way, do we? And so we, this morning, because he came to save his people from his sin, we long for his return. You see the psalmist understood. The longing of the Lord's return. Because he was certain. That it would bring. Forgiveness and redemption. And therefore relationship. With the holy God. He knew he was in relationship. And just couldn't wait. To be with God. I was talking to BJ. Our revival speaker. And he told me which was both. Uh, sobering and frightening at the same time. He said, Todd, I just can't wait to be with God. I just can't wait to be in the presence of God. And when he said that, I thought of this passage. He is a watchman waiting for the Lord's return. I hope that would be true for us. I just can't wait to be with God. Not that I want to get out of this world. It's not like I'm running from something. I just want to be with God because of his holiness, his kindness, his love, his gentleness, and his mercy. I hope that would be true for us, church, this morning. The last point is this. There's a promise for hope. Verses 7 and 8. Then the psalmist says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord. There's this plea to Israel. This is an an evangelistic plea. He's saying, hey, all that God has done for me in the first seven verses, now I can't hold it in any longer. I need you, Israel, to hope in the Lord the same way I've hoped in the Lord. And my hope is this, that you and I have experienced God so much, that would be our plea with unbelievers. Oh, put your hope in the Lord. How come? And now he's going to tell us, this is the reason I want you to put your hope in the Lord. He says, for with the Lord, there is what? Steadfast love. And with him, plentiful redemption. And he will redeem you from all of your iniquities. Three things he says that we can have our hope in or a promise. These things will come true. The first one is this, the Lord. He is steadfast love. 
He is eagerly pursuing us. He loves us. He loves an unbelieving world. He told us that in John 3, 16. For what I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son, that he would become the incarnation to save those that are lost. He wants to use his redeemed people to bring that message to lost people. You will only bring that message if you've experienced the kindness and the goodness and the forgiveness of God. So he says the first thing is this. Oh, there's a promise. There's a hope. Because we're certain of his unconditional, steadfast love. And then he says this. Not only that, but with him is what? Redemption. But look at the word in front of redemption. Plentiful. Meaning it never runs out. Meaning there's nothing that you or I or any unbeliever could ever do that would cause them not to experience the redemption of God. There is no sin that cannot and will not be forgiven in Christ Jesus. It is plentiful. There's more than enough to go around. And then lastly, he says this. When you've experienced God's love, you've experienced his redemption, then you will experience being redeemed. That simply means brought back together, to be bought with a price. And so the psalmist is saying to us, in all that we do, he forgives us from all of our iniquities. Circle the word all in your Bible. In all of our sin, he still loves us. In all that we've ever done, there's plentiful redemption. And with all of our sin, he forgives us. And so this morning in closing, where have you placed your hope this morning? Turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. The very last thing that Jonah says. Remember the context is Jonah still in the belly of of a fish when he cries this out. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, he says this. He's saying, in all my despair, but then he gets to this place of seeing God's redemption in his life, and he says this in verse 9, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you For what I have vowed, I will pay. It doesn't end there. I'm going to end our sermon with what he says last. If you haven't got to Jonah, go to Isaiah. It's easier to find. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. He says this, Come, now it's that same plea, that the psalmist has in verse 7. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That is our hope this morning, church. 
How come? It's because of what Jonah says at the very end of chapter 2. And I'll read that. And then I'll close it. Because what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, this morning we can place our hope. Not this uncertain expectation. But with all certainty, the promises of God and the promises of God are this. He loves us. He redeems us. And he will save us. Amen. That is why we come and we celebrate Advent this morning. He is our hope. Christ, the incarnation, is our hope this morning. Let me pray. God, you, through Christ Jesus, are our hope. Christ, with you, belongs all of our hope because you are our love, you are our redemption, and you are our salvation. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that just like the psalmist started, that, oh, I'm in the pit. I'm in the sea of trouble. I'm in the sea of despair that they would, like the psalmist, cry out to you for salvation. Because you are our hope. Salvation belongs to you and you alone. Thank you for our hope. May we cry out to you for hope. May we find our reason in you for our hope. May we eagerly and long for your return because our hope is in you and provides relationship with you. And God, may we hold to the promise and the promises of our hope. Your steadfast love, your redemption, which is great, and your forgiveness of all of our sins. We pray this in your mighty name, Christ Jesus, our Lord and our King. Amen. If you'd rise for the benediction this morning. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish your hearts in every good work and in the word. Grace and peace be with you and Merry Christmas.